0: So here's the thing. It doesn't matter if you're a follower of Jesus or not. You know this is true. When it comes to life, all of us face bottom of the ninth moments. And by bottom of the ninth, here's here's what I mean by that. A bottom of the ninth moment is a moment when you experience a setback that requires a seemingly impossible comeback. And we have all been there. And when you get in those moments, it's full of doubt. It can get really dark. It can get really difficult. And You tend to lose all hope, don't you? You tend to lose all hope. Maybe for you it's infertility and you're at a point where it's such a battle and such a struggle and you're really in the middle of it, it's hard to talk to people about it and so you feel so alone. But maybe for you that's what it is. Maybe for you it's a deal of, you know, you just feel like you've lost all hope that you're ever going to have the child that you want to have, at least in the... Way or the, that you dreamt about having a child. Maybe for you it's the debt. Maybe for, for you it's the finances. Everything's piling up, and you know you're just living paycheck to paycheck, and you've lost all hope that you'll ever experience financial freedom. That things will ever get better. Maybe for you it is uh, the marriage that you thought, oh, this is going to work out, and then you're like, ah, I'm not sure it's going to work out. And now you're deciding, no, I don't, I don't think it's going to work out. And you know this dream you had of staying in love, happy together forever isn't going to happen. Maybe for you it's it's a job situation. Maybe it's finding a job, or maybe it's at your job you're you're facing a challenge. You're Struggle that you're like, man. I just, I just don't know how I'm gonna navigate through this. I'm not sure how this one's gonna happen, and you're starting to lose hope. Maybe it's getting into school, or you know, finding the right school, or whatever it is for you, or for a child, or a grandchild. Uh, There's so many different things that we face. Maybe it's a health issue that you realize I'm losing hope that things are ever going to get better. I'm losing hope that, you know, I'm ever going to be able to beat this. Maybe it's uh, depression and anxiety. That is so, so difficult, isn't it? When you're in that uh, season of life or when you're battling that, you know, you you tend to, it gets so hard, you tend to lose all hope that uh, you're ever going to feel yourself. You're ever going to feel normal again. Like it just kind of becomes the new normal and you're not sure where things are going to go. All of us, it doesn't matter if you're a follower of Jesus or not, all of us face our own bottom of the ninth moments. And so last week we started this discussion that we're going to carry on for the next few weeks about, okay, what do you do when you find yourself in those moments? What do you do when you're down to your last strike and you're facing your own bottom of the ninth? And if you weren't here last week, you can catch up, and I hope you will because we we laid some groundwork for this. You can catch up right here at uh, BOTNseries.com. And you can find all the messages for this entire series as we go throughout. But last week's is already up there, and you can sit down and discuss it with some friends. We have discussion questions. And the reason it's important is because whenever we're in a bottom of the knife, we always end up being full of doubt. We always end up feeling down and out. But as we said last week, and this is so important to understand because. Your emotions don't tell you this. This is something you got to grab hold of and, and believe even when you don't feel it. But the reality is, for all of us, even when we feel down and out, we're not. The way I said it last week was you may be down, but you're not out. You may be down, but you're not out. And the reason is because we have a Heavenly Father. This is so important. We have a Heavenly Father who specializes in taking our dead ends and turning them into deliverances of some kind, of bringing something good out of bad. We have a Heavenly Father who specializes in taking setbacks and using them as setups for something very special to happen in our lives that we never thought we never knew we never saw coming but that does not mean and I don't want to insinuate this that does not mean that you and I don't feel doubt when we're in the middle of a bottom of the knife that does not mean that you and I don't still struggle and wrestle through the questions the concerns the fears the anxiety and the doubt the reality is doubt is a part of it as I said last week doubt is not an indication that you have a weak faith and we kind of get that message, if you've been around church, you get that message you know, in church a lot of times, but that is not reality. Doubt is never an indication of a weak faith. Doubt is actually, actually a prerequisite for a very big faith or a very great faith. In other words, if you only have about this much doubt, you only need about that much faith. But when you're, the bigger your doubt becomes, the more faith is required to move in spite of it. And so the way we summed all this up last week was this. We said faith isn't the absence of doubt. Faith is moving ahead in spite of of doubt. Faith is not the absence of doubt. Faith is moving ahead in spite of doubt. In other words, faith is simply saying, I feel this doubt. It's a very real deal. It's a very valid thing. It's something that's normal to feel, but I'm not going to let this doubt freeze me. I'm not going to let this doubt paralyze me. I'm not going to let this doubt cause me to stop doing what I should be doing. I'm going to move ahead in spite of my doubt. I'm going to keep acting with confidence, even though I carry these doubts along with me. And so if you were here last week, you remember I gave you a prayer, and I hope this prayer's been helpful for you. I hope it's, you know, maybe you've gone through some situations this week where this prayer has come back to mind, because this is a great way to communicate to our Heavenly Father, and He's fine with this, to communicate, hey, I'm carrying all of these doubts, but I still want to believe. I'm carrying all these doubts, but I don't want to let go of my trust in you. And so the prayer that I gave you to pray was simply, Lord, I believe. Now, help my unbelief. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Now, that being said, if you weren't here last week, that's a, that's a quick summary. But that being said, the question becomes, beyond prayer, what do you do when you're in the bottom of the knife? That's, that's important to figure out, isn't it? I mean, you find yourself in a situation where you're consumed by doubt or where you're wrestling through anxiety or fear and you're not sure how, how it's going to turn out. What do you do? Because it's not enough just to pray. It's not. It's not enough just to pray. In addition to prayer, God expects us to do something. Specifically, he expects us to do two things. And that's what I want to dive into today. And we're going to learn what those two things are from a couple that lived thousands and thousands and thousands of years ago. But here's what I love about this couple. They are so human. They are so easy to relate to. They were full of flaws, full of failures, full of screw-ups and mess-ups. They didn't get this right. They weren't perfect in how they managed all this. But what I love about them is not only did they mess up, but they ended up figuring it out. And they teach us some really valuable things. Now, you're going to be familiar with this couple. At least you're going to be you know, slightly familiar with their names, even if you're not a church person. Because this couple, particularly um, this husband, is central to not just Christianity, but he's central to anyone who follows Islam. He's central to anyone who practices Judaism. Like this couple, when you start talking to religious people, this couple is at the center of pretty much anyone's religious experience or religious faith. The couple's name is Abraham and Sarah. Now here's what's so fascinating to me about Abraham and Sarah. When they were living in a little Middle Eastern town named Haran, and Abraham was about 70 years old, and Sarah was about 60 or 61 years old. And nobody would have known anything about them. They were just another, you know, fairly well off couple, at least in that culture. And they were doing well for themselves. And they were living in this town surrounded by all of their family. And they were having an existence just like anyone else at that period of history was having an existence. And we would not know anything about their story except for what happens when Abraham is 70 years old and God shows up to him and has a conversation with him. And he says to him, Abraham, I want you to pick up your family, I want you to leave your extended family, and I want you to move from Haran. The the catch was, God said, I'm not going to tell you where you're going. I just want you to trust me, and I want you to follow. Now, there are some of you who that sounds like the most fun adventure in the world. I am not one of those people. I would rather have a root canal, is have to move my family and not have a clue where I'm going. Like, I would have, you know, and I don't know if Abraham was like this. I'm guessing he was, by the fact he had some questions, because I'd be like, well, you know, I would like a, a spreadsheet with a timeline of exactly how it's going to go, and, you know, give me the budget for how we're going to cover this move, and, you know, I would like a destination for sure, but I'd also like to know exactly how we're going to get there and how long it's going to take. Like, I, you know, if you're a planner, you're with me. Your anxiety level is, like, just straight to the top if somebody asks you to move and say, like, I'm not going to tell you where we're moving. Just follow me. Just trust me. I'll tell you when you get there. You know, it's like, are you kidding me? So in order to, I guess, entice or encourage Abraham to consider this, God makes Abraham three different promises. This is pretty interesting. God looks at Abraham and says, listen, I have a plan for your life, but in order for that plan to to unfold, you're going to have to trust me. You're going to have to move, but I'm going to tell you what's going to happen if you move. I'm going to make your name great, Abraham. Well, now that gets your attention, right? Because when you're making your name great, in other words, people know who you are and people respect you and maybe you're famous. Like That had to get Abraham's attention because there are some perks that come along with that. You notice when people get famous, you get free stuff. You go places, you get free stuff. You, don't, you get a reservation in any restaurant you want. You don't have to wait in line at DQ. You just go in the back door at DQ. I mean, it's really... It's really simple when you're famous. People who are watching who are not from our community are going, why is there a line at DQ? Well, you just have to Google it. I can't, you know, I'm not going to explain it now. But that, when, you know, that probably got Abraham's attention. Okay, I'm going to make your name great. Well, that doesn't sound so bad. And then God said, Abraham, I'm going to make you a blessing to all the nations on the earth. To which I'm sure Abraham said, I have no clue what that means. But that, again, doesn't sound so bad. But it was this third thing. It was this third thing that I think got his attention and Sarah's attention the most. God said, Abraham, you are going to become the father of a great nation, and that struck right at the heart of the most sensitive bottom of the knife moment that Abraham and Sarah had lived with their entire lives, because for the existence of their marriage, they had struggled with infertility, and for the existence of their marriage in a culture, and we can't even fully grasp this, but in a culture where... The number of children you were able to give your husband gains you respect, gains you honor, gains you worth. In a culture where the size of your family determined the greatness of your family, in a culture where so much of that was valued far more even than it is today. Here they are at 70 and 60, 61 years old, and they have no children. And no doubt this had been a sensitive spot. This had been a point of pain for them for years and years and years. And they were at a point in their life where they had decided that the comeback just wasn't gonna happen, that their bottom of the mouth was gonna end in a loss. And now suddenly God is looking at them and saying, no, 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 if you'll do what I ask, if you'll trust me, one of the things I promise you is you are gonna have a son and you're gonna become the father of a great nation. So Abraham and Sarah, maybe because of the promises, probably because of the promises, they move and they move fast. They pick up everything they have, and they begin to follow God's direction and just trust Him day by day to figure out where it is that He's moving them. But their assumption was, and we would assume the same. Their assumption was, well, if God, you know, if we're moving fast, God's going to move fast too. Because good grief, we're seventy and sixty-one. People lived longer then, so they had children at a later age then. But even at that, I mean, their window was closing. So they're going, okay, we're going to be we're going to be pregnant within a year. We're going to be pregnant by the time we arrive at our destination. And a year passes and no pregnancy, two years pass, five years pass, ten years pass, if you know the story, you know 15, 20, 25 years pass before they ever have a child. And in those 25 years, and I'm summarizing a whole lot of story, but in those 25 years, these two people are consumed with doubt. Over the course of 25 years, and understandably so, right, in the course of 25 years, they have multiple points in their life where they come to the conclusion, I don't think God's going to keep his promise. I don't think God's going to do what God said he was going to do. They have multiple points where they don't always get it right. I'll give you a couple examples. Twice Abraham and Sarah show up in an area where a man who has great power and authority in that area, at one point it was Egypt and it was Pharaoh, approached them and want to take Sarah, this, uh, Pharaoh wanted to take Sarah as his wife, and Abraham looks at Pharaoh and says, go right ahead, she's my sister. Now, I, I don't know how that conversation went once they sorted all that out at home, but I'm guessing Abraham slept under the stars for a few weeks after that. I mean, it's like, are you kidding me? But, again, he was so afraid, and he decided, well, God's not going to do what God said he was going to do, and I don't want Pharaoh to kill me just to get my wife, so I'll just give her to Pharaoh. I mean, it's just, you would look at this and say, here's a person who has no faith whatsoever. It got so bad that at some point, ladies, try to wrap your mind around how desperate you would have to be to do this. It got so bad at one point that Sarah said, I'm never going to be able to have a child for you, Abraham, so here, here, here's my maid, here's my maid. You just sleep with her until you get her pregnant. Like, can you imagine how desperate you have to be to get to that point? No, you cannot. You cannot wrap your mind around that, neither can I. But these are not people who, you know, they just had rock-solid faith and they never doubted. No, they had, they had plenty of moments throughout their story, and this is important to understand. They had plenty of moments throughout their story where doubt overwhelmed their faith, where doubt took them out, where doubt knocked them out. But, as you're going to see in a minute, they did not let that stop them from regaining their faith, from regaining their trust, from regaining their hope. And sure enough, 25 years later, Sarah miraculously has a son named Isaac. And interestingly enough, Isaac has Jacob and Esau, two sons, and Abraham dies. And he doesn't see the fulfillment of the promise, but Jacob has 12 sons who become the heads of the 12 tribes of Israel, and a nation eventually is born. And it all starts because of a move that Abraham and Sarah chose to make. And so what I want to do is dive into that story for just a little bit today, because that is a story that teaches us, hey, okay, I'm sitting here and I'm carrying all these doubts and yet I still want to believe. I'm sitting here and my doubt has overwhelmed my faith, but I don't want it to, and so I want to to regain my faith. This is a story that teaches us so much about what it looks like to wrestle with this, to say, Lord, I believe, but I need your help with all my unbeliefs." in the middle of your bottom of the ninth moment, in the middle of your bottom of the knife experience. Now, here's what's so interesting. and this, this story was central, as I said, to the Jewish people for centuries and centuries and centuries, and so thousands of years later, the Apostle Paul, you've heard of Paul. The Apostle Paul is sitting down, and he is penning a letter, and I think about this. He is penning a letter to people in Rome who are followers of Jesus who were facing and we don't know what what this exactly looked like for them or what the exact circumstances were but they were facing their own bottom of the knife moments now we can guess can you imagine being a follower of Jesus in the first century in Rome you're at the epicenter of the Roman empire you're at the epicenter of the authorities who chose who authorized Jesus crucifixion they're sitting there in Rome following the one that the Roman people said yep we're crucifying him can you imagine the doubt that they had to feel, the persecution, the pain, the struggle, the frustration. Can you imagine all of the obstacles they had to face from time to time? I'm sure at times it was just simple fear for their lives based on their faith in Jesus. Because unlike everyone else in the Roman Empire, these Christians, as they were just starting to become called, these Christians would not say, Caesar is Lord. Everyone else in the empire would just say, Caesar is Lord. These Christians refused to do it. They would say, nope, we're not saying that because we believe Jesus is Lord. But it created some serious bottom of the ninth moments for them. And so Paul's writing this letter and he's trying to encourage them. He's trying to help them figure out how to wrestle through all the doubts that they're feeling, but at the same time hold on to their faith and how to trust God in the midst of it. And he gives some extraordinary advice for us from this story as he summarizes and pulls out these lessons from the story of Abraham and Sarah, a story that they are very familiar with, these Roman Christians are. And so as you'll see when we read this in a minute, Paul takes, you know, uh, dozens of years worth of story, and he summarizes it in just a few sentences. But he gives us two great pieces of advice. He basically pin- pinpoints, here are the two things Abraham and Sarah did in the midst of their doubts to keep believing and trusting God in their bottom of the knife moment. So I just want to read this to you. I want to pull these two things out for us, and then I'm going to give us all a little bit of homework At the end, it's going to be really simple to understand. It's going to be very difficult to do, okay? I'll warn you on the front end. But hopefully, this is going to be helpful. So, Romans chapter 4. Paul's in the middle of this letter to the Romans, and here's what he says. Against all hope... Abraham in hope believed. And let me just pause right here because what a contradiction, huh? Paul says, okay, it was Abraham's situation, and they were so familiar with the story. He said, you know, in Abraham's situation, it was against all hope. It was against all hope. Like there was no chance that God's promise was going to come true. Nothing added up. Nothing made sense. But against all hope, Abraham still in hope chose to believe. Now, all I want to point out here before we keep reading is that this was not blind faith on Abraham's part. This was not blind faith. This was not Abraham closing his eyes to his situation and saying, oh, I'm going to ignore it, I'm not going to ignore it. Nobody tell me how bad it is. Nobody tell me that's impossible. I'm just ignoring all that. And it's just blind faith in God. You're going to see what I mean by that and why it's not blind faith in just a minute. But Paul goes on. This first statement, he just summarizes Abraham's entire story in a sentence. He says, against all hope, Abraham and hope believed, and so became the father of many nations, just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. So in a sentence, Paul summarizes dozens and dozens of years, and he says, hey, you know what happened with Abraham. You know that Abraham, in spite of the fact that there was no evidence that pointed to this, still believed what had been said to him by God. He still believed the promise God had made. And sure enough, here we are, hundreds of years later looking back, and it's easy for us to see we have perspective that Abraham didn't. It's easy for us to see God came through. On his promise. But then, this is the valuable part. Paul dives into explaining to us how Abraham held on to this faith in the midst of all of his doubts. Here's what he says, verse 19. Without weakening in his faith. Now, let me just pause right here because we know, I just told you this, we know from Abraham's story, he had plenty of moments when he weakened in his faith. Plenty of moments. So what's Paul mean? Is Paul like, you know, trying to brush things over and make Abraham look a lot better than he really was? No. Paul's just, again, he's summarizing a whole life, a whole life. And so here's what Paul's saying. Paul's saying in the grand scheme of things, in the course of Abraham's life, when you look at where he started and where you look at where he finished, he did not weaken in his faith. That in other words, Abraham's faith started here, but Abraham's faith ended way up here. It was up and to the right. But the thing for you and for me that I think is so encouraging is to understand, and Paul knew this, is to understand that Abraham's faith may have ended up here, but it wasn't a straight line of growth. If you were to chart Abraham's faith, it would have looked a lot more like this. It was a roller coaster. Moments where he had great faith and he believed and he held on, and moments where he just the doubt just overwhelmed his faith and he lost it all. And he just, in essence, walked away and gave up. But the reason Abraham ended up with a faith greater than where he started, and this is so important, is because every time he lost faith, every time doubt overwhelmed or overcame his faith, Abraham got back up and started believing again. Every time he blew it, every time he screwed up, every time he, you know, lied and said my wife is really my sister, every time he gave up and said God's never going to fulfill this promise, every time he tried to manipulate the outcome so that he could bring about God's promise in his own way and kind of, you know, orchestrate and navigate the situation, every time he messed up, he realized it. And he would, in essence, pray this prayer that we talked about last week. Lord, I still want to believe, so just help my unbelief. In other words, when, he, when his faith faltered, he never gave up, When he found himself at the bottom, he always looked up. And so because of that, his faith continued to grow. So Paul uh, Paul says to these Romans and to you and to me that Abraham, without weakening in his faith, here's what he did. He faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old and that Sarah's womb was also dead. This is the very first thing that you have to do if you're going to go through a bottom of the ninth experience and your faith's going to grow. If you're gonna go through the bottom of the knife and your relationship with God is gonna get stronger, not weaker, the first thing you have to do is this, you have to confront the brutal facts. You have to confront the brutal facts. Now this is why I said that this is not blind faith on Abraham's part. And I wanna take just a minute to unpack what this looks like. Confronting the brutal facts means you face the reality of your situation and you don't ignore it or you don't deny it. Paul says, let me tell you what Abraham did right. At no point in this journey, even with all his questions and doubts, at no point in this journey did Abraham ignore the fact that he was too old and Sarah was too old to have a child. At no point did they ignore the fact that their situation was such that apart from a miracle, this would not happen and God's promise would not come true. Abraham never denied that. Abraham never put his head in the sand. Abraham never ignored the reality of his situation. And you and I should not either. You and I should not either. When you're in a bottom of the ninth moment, you gotta start by confronting the brutal facts, which just means this, you gotta start by looking at the checking account and saying, here's where we are. Looking at the credit card statement or the, you know, the, the credit that you have, the debt that you have and saying, okay, here's where we are. You gotta start by acknowledging where you are. You gotta start by acknowledging where your marriage is. You gotta start by acknowledging where that relationship is with your kid. You gotta start by acknowledging what's going on in your family, what's going on at your workplace. You need to start by confronting the brutal facts and acknowledging the full weight of the situation. To have faith does not mean to have no fear, to have no doubt, to have no anxiety. To have faith does not mean to say, oh, yeah, it's all going to be fine. And people are trying to tell you, yeah, but you don't understand what the doctor said. I know, I know, but it's all going to be fine. God's got it all in his hands. Well, okay, that's, that's great. That's wonderful. But that doesn't, faith doesn't mean you ignore the reality in front of you. Nowhere are we called to have blind faith, and that's what blind faith is. Blind faith is the kind of faith where you say, I'm not looking, I'm not looking, I'm not looking, but I believe. Well, that's not any faith at all. Great faith is when you look at the enormity of the problem in front of you and you say, in spite of how big this is, in spite of the fact that I cannot, in spite of the fact there's no way I can fix this, okay, a better leader is not gonna fix that problem. A, a better strategic plan is not gonna fix that problem. A, another job, more money, it's not gonna fix that problem, okay, another conversation, another talk, another counseling session is not gonna fix that problem. Like you, you need to look at it and acknowledge, okay, where I am right now, I gotta confront the brutal facts. I'm consumed by doubt, I am afraid, I am anxious. And I do not see how this is going to work out. This is beyond my ability to fix. Faith always starts right here, right here. Because if you ignore that, then what you're doing is you're not having faith in a God who's big enough to do something that you're not capable of doing on your own. You're just denying reality and hoping that, you know, the genie in the bottle pops out at the right time and does what you want him to do. So never find yourself, and the reason I bring this up is because never find yourself in the bottom of the ninth moment. And think, because you feel fear, because you feel doubt, because you feel anxiety, because you're honest enough to look at someone and acknowledge, I know the reality of my situation, and this is not good. I know the reality of my situation, and yes, I would acknowledge. I see no way this is going to turn out. I see no way this is going to be fixed. I see no way this is going to change. When you acknowledge those things, it is not a lack of faith on your part. That's not an admission that you have lost your faith. That is an admission that you are confronting the brutal facts. You are acknowledging the situation in front of you. It does not mean that your faith is weak. Abraham had to start right there. Abraham had to start by facing the fact when it came to having a child, his body was as good as dead, and so was his wife's. But that is not where he stopped. Step one is you confront the brutal facts. But step two, and this may seem like a contradiction, but step two is this. Paul goes on and he says, Yet, in spite of the fact that he faced the fact his body was as good as dead, yet Abraham did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God. And then he goes on. He says, being fully persuaded. Abraham was fully persuaded That God had, this is a key part, God had power to do what he had promised. So you confront the brutal facts, but here's the second thing. You keep believing. This is what Abraham did so well. You confront the brutal facts, but you keep believing. In other words, I'm going to confront the brutal facts of my situation. I'm going to acknowledge that this is something beyond my ability to fix. But I am going to keep believing. I'm going to keep having faith. Now, this is key. Don't miss this. Abraham did not have faith in an outcome taking place. This is so important. Abraham's faith was not in the outcome. Abraham's faith was not in, well, I'm just certain God's going to orchestrate my circumstances and everything's going to work out fine. Abraham's faith was in the one who had made him a promise. Abraham's faith was not in, well, I'm going to get this answered prayer and get what I want and it's good. No, no, his faith was in... I know the one I'm following. I know the one who made me this promise. I know what his character is like. I know how he has treated me. I know how he's been faithful and dependable and trustworthy to me in the past. I am trusting in him. I'm not trusting in this. I don't know if this outcome is going to happen. I know what he promised me. I don't know how that's going to happen. I can't imagine how it's going to happen. But my faith isn't in whether that happens or not. My faith is in my heavenly father. My faith is in the one who i trusted enough to get up from Heron with my family and move to a place he was going to tell me. And he has been faithful in every other situation, so I'm going to trust he's going to be faithful right now. This is what it looks like to keep believing in the midst of situations and circumstances that seem impossible. This is what it looks like to keep believing when you find yourself in a situation where you think, I can't fix this, and I see no way, I see no scenario where God is going to fix this. But your faith isn't in God fixing something. Your faith is in the one who has promised to be with you. Your faith is in the one who has promised he's trustworthy. Your faith is in the one who can do anything and has the power to do anything, and whether he does it or not is not your major concern. You have faith that he is with you no matter what he does and no matter what happens in your bottom of the knife. because the reality is sometimes God steps in and does a miracle, and sometimes he doesn't. And we're going to talk more in a couple of weeks about why that is and what you do when you find yourself and how, you, how it impacts your relationship with God when he chooses not to step in and do what you want to see him do. But Abraham's faith was not in whether or not the outcome happened that he wanted. It was in the one who had the power to do what he had promised Abraham he would do. Now, the reason this is such a big deal, the reason I don't want you to miss this, is because all of us, this is human nature, I'm just like you, all of us find ourselves in situations where we focus on the outcome, we focus on the destination. It's all about, well, I've got this problem and I want this to happen, and when this has happened, then, oh, I'm going to thank God, and I'm going to be so grateful, and I'm going to give God credit. And then i got this problem, and when this happens, and then i got this problem, when this happens. I mean, all we focus on is the outcome. Listen, God is not focused on the outcome. Whatever your bottom of the knife is, God's concern is not orchestrating the, the appropriate outcome. Because that is no problem for him. You're focused on the destination, but he's focused on the journey. You know what his primary focus and concern is? Your relationship with him in the process of getting to where you're going to get. That's what he cares about. Far more than, oh, my goodness, we avoided bankruptcy. Oh, my goodness, my son or my daughter. Oh, my goodness, you know, this job plan worked its way out, oh my goodness, I got the promotion. Like all of those things that we get so excited about. God's not nearly as concerned about that as he is our faith growing, our faith developing, our relationship with him reaching a point where we learn over the course of time as we go on this journey with him, as we go through this process with him, that we can trust him. When Abraham got 25 years later, when he got to the point where he had his son Isaac, you know what Abraham's greatest joy was? Abraham's most valuable gift, he I mean he loved his son, he loved his son, but Abraham's most valuable gift was not just his son, it was what he had learned about his heavenly father over a 25-year period that he would not have learned if God had given him a son in year one. There were some lessons and there were some things that could happen in Abraham's relationship with God that would only happen if there was a 25-year process. And the reason I bring that up is because some of you are in bottom of the knots, and you cannot figure out why God will not just answer your prayer. You can't figure out why he's not just fixing things like that because you're like, he can, and it's creating so much doubt and uncertainty in you. And I get that. I totally get that. But the reason is often because he wants to teach you some things through the process. He wants you to come to know him in some ways. He wants you to learn to trust him in some ways. You want a quick fix. He wants big faith. You want a quick fix. He wants you to have big trust in him. And that will only happen as you wrestle through, i got to confront the brutal facts, but i got to keep believing. I'm going to confront the brutal facts. I'm going to keep believing. And sometimes, isn't it true along that journey that you lean a little too much to confront the brutal facts and your, your doubt overwhelms you? Your doubt overwhelms your faith. And then just like Abraham, you have to remember, no, 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 no. My heavenly father cares. He's there, and I can trust him. And then you start believing again. And as you find yourself navigating through that, and you find yourself having those issues, just remember, Abraham had them. Every person who's ever followed God has had them. It does not mean that you're failing at your faith. As long as you look up, and you re-engage, and you keep believing. That's what Abraham did. Paul says, that's the lesson that he teaches us. Confront the brutal facts, but keep believing. Hold on to both of those things at the very same time. Now, for Abraham, and this is great news, because for us as well, when you and I understand this and when we begin to grasp and practice this, the payoff, the reward, what we experience in our relationship with God is extraordinary. Here's how Paul summarizes it at the end of this little passage in Romans. He says this, this is why the fact that Abraham faced the facts, but he kept believing. This is why it was credited to him as righteousness. Let me tell you what righteousness is. Righteousness just means a right standing with God. It means you have a relationship with God. It means you are a friend of God. Throughout this process, this is what Abraham experienced. His faith, his trust in his heavenly father in the midst of his bottom of the knife enabled him to develop a relationship with God that reached a point where, guess what the writer of Abraham's story said? The writer of Abraham's story described Abraham this way. He said, Abraham was a friend of God. But he was a friend because he went through a process or a journey where that friendship developed over time as he learned to confront the brutal facts but still keep believing. That's what it looks like to have something credited as righteousness. It means we get to enter into a relationship or a friendship with our Heavenly Father. And Paul says, I want you to realize it's that personal, not just for Abraham, it's that personal for us. He goes on. He says the words that was credited to him were written not For him alone but also for us Paul says you got to understand this is personal I'll explain this in a minute to whom God will credit righteousness so Paul says God wants to credit righteousness God wants a relationship God wants a friendship not just with Abraham but with every single one of us for us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead he that is Jesus was delivered over to death for our sins and he was raised to life for our justification. Justification just means, hey, everything's been made right. The debt's been canceled. Your account has been cleared. Now, this is so big. This is so big. Because what Paul just said to us was this. We have a father in heaven who wants a relationship with us just as much as he wanted a relationship with Abraham. We have a father in heaven who wants a friendship with us just as much as he wanted a friendship with Abraham. That just like Abraham was called a friend of God, you and I can be called a friend of God. It is why Paul said Jesus came and he died and he rose again. He died for our sins and he rose again for our justification or for our reconciliation with God. So that we could have righteousness credited to us, which is just a fancy biblical way of saying, so we could have our sins forgiven, everything could be made right between us and God, and we could have a friendship with him the way he intended. That is why Jesus came. It is why he did what he did. That is the links to which God went to try to develop a relationship with you and with me. It's that important to him. It is that important to him. This is not a transaction thing. This is not a deal of, oh, you know, I got to put my faith and trust in Jesus so I can go to heaven one day. Like, that's I mean, that's fine, but that's transactional. That's kind of like, a, I'm doing this because of the, you know, I'm just sign my name to this and good. Now I, I get the benefit and we're all good. No, no, no. God says, oh, this, that's not what this is about. This is about, I want a relationship with you, which is why everything that happens in your life happens because God's greatest goal for you is to build big faith in you or big trust in you because the stronger your trust and your faith is with your heavenly father, the closer your friendship becomes. See, when, when you confront the brutal facts and keep believing As you follow God, your friendship or your relationship with God goes through the exact same cycle. It goes through the exact same stages that your friendship and relationship with anybody else goes through. Here's what happens. When you confront the brutal facts and you keep believing, the first thing that happens is you come to know God. You come to know him. You begin to understand what matters to him. You begin to understand as you spend time with him and as you wrestle with him through some of this, you begin to understand what he cares about. You begin to understand what he's for. You begin to understand who he's for. You begin to understand how much he's for you and how much he cares about you. And the more you come to know him, just like any other friendship you have, any other relationship, the more you come to know him, you know what happens? The more you come to trust him. Because as you get to know him, you realize he's dependable, he's trustworthy. He's faithful. He's caring. He's compassionate. He's kind. He's loving. He's loving he's grace-filled, he's merciful, you begin to trust him because you get to know and you get to see his character. And the more you trust someone, what happens? The more you come to believe them. The more you trust God, the more you believe him. The more you trust God, the more you begin to believe God, even when it doesn't make sense. And you just think about this in your other relationships. Isn't this the way it works? You have certain friendships that you know that person so well and you have so much history with that person and you have so much trust in that person that they can tell you something that makes no sense to you, but you'll trust them and you'll believe them because you know they wouldn't lead you astray. Well, this is what happens with God. As you confront the brutal facts and yet you keep believing and you wrestle through these things with God, the more you know him, the more you trust him, which means the more you believe him, and even when he doesn't make sense, And you begin to find yourself extending forgiveness to people when it makes no sense to extend forgiveness. But you just know that's what God says you should do, and it's got to be the best thing, so you do it. And you trust that it's going to work out, and it's going to be in your best interest. It's why you take your finances, and you begin to manage them entirely differently. It doesn't make any sense to give first, and then save second, and then try to live on the rest. That makes no sense, but that's what you start doing. You make it a priority to give first. And you make it a priority to save something second. And then you live on the rest of it. Because you believe him, even if it doesn't add up in your head. This is why you begin in your marriage to practice mutual submission. Because that doesn't make any sense. If I mutually submit and I try to you know, put the interest of my spouse ahead of my own, then what if they take advantage of me? And how is that going to make things better? But you just believe him enough, you do it. You just step out and you trust him. And you manage the areas of your life the way he asks you to because you know he's trustworthy and you can believe him. And guess what happens? The more you believe him, the more you love him. Because in any relationship, it's the way it works. Trust and belief lead to love. The more you trust and believe someone... You find yourself coming to love them more. Not loving what they can do for you. This is so important. Not loving just what they can do for you, but loving them for who they are. Even if they don't do what you want them to do, you still love them because of who they are. And in your relationship with God, that leads to you following him. Following him when it costs you something. Following him when it doesn't make sense. Following him when it's difficult and hard. Following him when you find yourself in the bottom of the knife and he is not changing the situation and things are not getting any better. Maybe even you find you lose. But it doesn't matter. You get to the point where you decide, even if I lose here, even if you know, this person's life isn't saved and this is, doesn't happen and I don't get out of this predicament and this isn't turned around, even if God doesn't do what I so hope he does, he's still worth following because I know who he is, I trust him, I believe him, and I love him. This is what it looks like. This is why it matters so much to invest in these two things Abraham teaches us and Sarah teaches us, to invest in these two things and confront the brutal facts of your situation, but keep believing, because when you do both of these at the same time, what you do is you enable this process to take place. And guess what happens? As you work your way through this and you learn to follow, you come to know him in a new way you never had before, and the cycle starts all over again, and your friendship with God goes deeper and deeper and deeper. So let me give you a question. Let me give you a little homework, and we'll wrap up, okay? The question is this. What would I do if I was confident God was with me? You need to answer that question. You need to pray, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. But you also need to answer this question. And whatever the situation or circumstance is you're facing right now, your bottom-of-the-knife moment, ask yourself, what would I do if I was confident, if I was confident that God was with me? Now, I told you this was easy to figure out, but it's really hard to do because when you answer this question, you need to do it. When you answer this question, what you need to do this week is you need to act on it. You need to do it. Maybe what you would do if you were confident God was with you is that you would extend the forgiveness that doesn't make sense to extend. Maybe you would give the money it doesn't make sense to give. Maybe you would reconcile the relationship it doesn't make sense to reconcile. Maybe you would come to the point where you would say, you know what, if I were confident God was with me, then I would just turn this entire situation over to him and and I would acknowledge I'm going to love you and trust you and follow you whether you do what I want you to do with this or not because you're worth it. I don't know what this looks like for you. But you need to figure out the answer to this question and then this week you need to do it. You need to do it. You need to keep praying, absolutely, but you need to put some feet to your prayer and you need to do the thing that you would do if you knew without a doubt, my heavenly father is with me, not not that you were confident he was going to fix your situation, but if you were confident he was with you through the situation, what would you do? You need to do it. You need to do it. For some of you, you've been trying to figure out what it means to have a relationship with God, and your answer to this question may be to explore this further. It may be to Ask some questions. It may be to read your Bible a little bit. It may be to keep coming back and trying to figure out who God is. And for some of you, you've been doing that. And if you were confident God was with you, your next step would be to come to know Him. It would be to enter into a relationship with your Heavenly Father. And Jesus has already made everything possible for that to happen. Paul said everything that needs to happen for you to have a friendship with God has happened. You just need to embrace it, you just need to trust Him, you just need to accept the gift that Jesus offers through his death and his resurrection. So as we close, I wanna do a couple things. I want us to pray together, and if you've never taken that step, maybe you've been in church, and maybe you've kinda of been around faith, but you've never actually taken the step to say, you know what, I want a friendship with you, Jesus. I want a relationship. I'm gonna give you an opportunity, just where you are in your own mind, in your own heart, your own way, to tell God that. And for those of us who do follow, but we need to confront some brutal facts, and we need to keep believing, Would you take these next few moments to to say, God, give me the wisdom to know what I should do, what I need to do, what I would do if I was confident you were with me, and then give me the courage and the boldness to go do it this week. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you want a relationship with us, and that blows our minds when we stop to really think about it that not only could Abraham be a friend of yours, but we can too. And so for those who've never embraced that friendship, right where they're sitting, right where they're watching right now, would you, um, would you let them know how much you love them? And I, I pray that they'll take this moment just to express to you, I want to I be your friend. I want to know you. I want to begin this relationship and this journey with you because that is what you want most from us. For those of us who are following you, but man, the doubts overwhelm our face so often, would you help us to have the wisdom to know what we would do if we were confident you were with us in our current situation? And then give us the boldness and the courage to go do it. And we know that there's only so much we can do and that there's a huge gap between what we can do and what needs to happen in our situation. We're just going to trust you with that gap to do with it what you want to. But whether you... Bring the comeback or not, whether we get the outcome we want or not, we're going to trust you and we're going to believe because you are worth following, and we thank you for that. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name.